Welcome to Forum Fest, Westminster's Town Hall Forum new summer series that engages the public in reflection and dialogue on the important issues of our day. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and I'm moderator of Forum Fest. It's my pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker. Jonathan Alter is an award-winning columnist, author, and historian. Since 1991, he has written a widely claimed column for Newsweek magazine examining politics, media, and global issues. In 2008, he covered his seventh presidential campaign for the magazine. He's a political analyst for NBC News and MSNBC, and the author of the 2006 book, the Defining Moment, FDR's 100 Days and the Triumph of Hope. His new book and the topic of tonight's presentation is The Promise, President Obama, Year One, which offers the first inside look at our current president's historic and challenging debut year. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Jonathan Alter. Thank you so much, Reverend Anderson, and thank you all so much for coming tonight. What a wonderful crowd we have. Uh, I know that Minnesota is more civically active and engaged than most, and this is proof. Um, here's what I uh, want to do tonight is uh, give you a sense uh, of what's in my book uh, and some of the new material that you maybe haven't heard or read in the newspapers. Uh, but first, I thought I would give you a little sense of how I met Barack Obama and, and got into this whole thing. Um, I, uh, about uh, early 2002, I guess it was, uh, my aunt died, and my cousin uh, was a good friend of Barack Obama's uh, and in Chicago, where I come from, was born and raised. Um, and he kept telling me, uh, John, you've got to write a column about this guy, Barack Obama. He's my friend. He's a really great state senator here. And I'd say, Bobby, you know, Newsweek circulates in Minnesota and in Kansas and in Timbuktu, and I really don't think they're that interested in your friend, the state senator. But um, after uh, my mother's sister died uh, and, and we were over at my cousin's house, uh, Obama came over to pay his respects. And at that time, he was a failed uh, congressional candidate. And he told me um, that he was going to run for the US Senate, which I thought showed some moxie or chutzpah or whatever you might want to call it. Um, and I got to know him a little bit over the next couple of years. Um, in, in 2004, as you may recall, he gave that famous speech at the 2004 Democratic Convention. And after he was elected to the Senate, but before he was sworn in, uh, Newsweek decided to do the first ever cover story about Obama. And I went down from our home in New Jersey to Washington to interview him, and I brought my then 13-year-old son, Tommy Alter, with me. Uh, and after the interview, Tommy said, Dad, that guy's going to be president in 2008. <laughs> and I, I said, uh, Tommy, when you've covered politics as long as I have, 
You all know there's simply no chance of that happening, perhaps in 2016, but even that has to be considered a long shot. And so um, fast forward to November of 2009, and um, I was on my way into the Oval Office to interview President Obama. And with Barack Obama, uh, there's a short period, maybe a minute 32 minutes of small talk that you get, very charming, and then you know that he's gonna get down to business. And by this point, I knew enough about him to know that as we're walking into the, the Oval Office, that was my small talk moment, so I came up with the most creative question I could possibly ask. So, how was your Thanksgiving, Mr. President? <laughs> Uh, and he said, you know, we had a great Thanksgiving. We went to the uh, Oregon State George Washington University basketball game. Uh, you know, my brother-in-law is the coach of Oregon State, and it was really fun, uh, except that my mother-in-law, Shell's mother, kept punching me the whole time. And, you know, I said, uh, you know, stop punching me every time the game gets close. First of all, you're hurting me, and second of all, if you don't stop punching me, the Secret Service is gonna haul you out of here. <laughs> so, you know, by this time, we've kind of circled uh, the couch, and he's sitting back in one of those wing-back chairs that you see on television. And I, I said, you know, uh, Mr. President, my son uh, goes to George Washington, and he's actually gonna be assistant manager of the basketball team next year. And he's, He's a good politician, he remembers things. He says, your son, that one that, that I met, he's already in college? And I said, yeah, and I, I told him a version of the story that I just told you. Uh, and he says, well, you tell Tommy two things. First, you say hi to Tommy, and second, you tell him he should have talked me out of it. <laughs> <laughs> And then he says, joke, joke, because he knew he was talking to a reporter. Uh, at which point he says, okay. And that was an unmistakable signal that it was time to talk about Afghanistan, healthcare, and the rest. That was the day before his speech at West Point uh, outlining his policy on Afghanistan, which was the product of, a, of 20 hours of uh, very intense meetings in the Situation Room, um, which I detail in The Promise, uh, which was the most uh, detailed and extensive examination of a national security question since the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. It's kind of hard to believe, but in both the Vietnam and Iraq wars, we went an inch by inch without actually raising all of the key issues for debate in a single important set of meetings. And when I interviewed Robert McNamara about uh, Vietnam and, and the Iraq War, he said that was one of their big mistakes, uh, that they had never actually examined the assumptions behind the war. Uh, and then George W. Bush made the same mistake in Iraq. So Obama was determined to change that and to, as he said, slow things down so that he could really look hard at uh, what was going on in Afghanistan. Um, I was beginning to learn around this time that there was a, a hidden drama that was not in any of the press uh, 
in this period, the fall of 2009, um, that involved General McChrystal. Now, something that very much was in the press was that uh, General McChrystal had taken command and had issued a report which leaked, and it was all over 60 minutes, you might remember, in magazines and newspapers talking about the McChrystal Plan, it was called, uh, it, and it was essentially an open-ended 10-year or more commitment, probably cost a trillion dollars, full counterinsurgency uh, commitment to Afghanistan, a nation-building commitment. Uh, and uh, he argued for it very passionately. Hillary Clinton supported it. Others in the Pentagon supported it. There was only one problem with it. The president hadn't yet decided on a policy. And he really didn't appreciate that uh, General McChrystal was out basically boxing him in by saying that this was going to be the policy. And so in that interview, I, I asked the president, uh, were you jammed by the Pentagon, boxed in, manipulated? And his answer was very revealing. He said, quote, I neither confirm nor deny that I was jammed by the Pentagon. Now, those of us in our business, and I expect you know what that means. So that gave me the sense, wow, there really is a, an interesting backstory here. And one of my objectives in the promise was to tell the backstory, tell you what happened when the cameras are off behind closed doors in the Oval Office or the Situation Room or the Roosevelt Room based on a couple hundred interviews that I did with people who see the president regularly. Um, and what I learned was that uh, after General McChrystal went public over the summer of 2009, the White House got pretty upset and they put out the word that everybody was to stop talking out of school uh, about the policy in advance. Um, so McChrystal, uh, excuse me, uh, General Petraeus, who has now replaced General McChrystal as our commanding general in Afghanistan, uh, called up uh, a National Security Council official and said, I get it, we get it, get the point. But somehow McChrystal didn't get the memo. So he goes to London uh, and, in a, and gives a speech that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mike Mullen, signed off on. And in the Q&A afterward, he's asked, uh, could you support um, the Biden plan? which was very few troops for Afghanistan, use of predator drones and special forces. And McChrystal says, not to be glib about it, but no. And in the White House, they're going, what did he just say? Let's get this straight. The commanding general in the region is saying that if the president supports the vice president's policy, he can't support it? There's a word for that, insubordination. You can't say that. So Obama was over in Copenhagen at the time, uh, trying to get the Olympics for Chicago. You might remember that episode. Uh, that, that worked out well. Uh, <laughs> when he got back, uh, his aide said, did, did you really have to go? And he said, yeah, if I hadn't gone, Michelle would have killed me, because <laughs> she, was, she was running it, uh, that, that particular effort for their hometown. Um, and he summons McChrystal from London to meet him on the tarmac on Air Force One in Copenhagen. The reason I mention all of this is that what happened uh, on Wednesday 
was not Stanley McChrystal's first visit to the woodshed. And this context is very important to understanding why he got fired. Um, so Obama uh, meets with McChrystal, and the question that's in his mind is, uh, was he naive or out of control? And Obama concludes that he was naive. Um, he had been running black ops, as they're called, uh, secret, basically, assassination units uh, run by the military in Iraq, um, and didn't have a lot of experience with the press. Uh, and Obama thought, he's a gung-ho soldier, he's passionate about the mission, it's not really his fault. And when he gets back to Washington, he summons Admiral Mullen, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, with the Secretary of Defense in attendance. And he dresses him down in the most severe terms that any president has used uh, with a military commander since Truman fired MacArthur in 1951. This is what I was told uh, by the White House, and when I researched it, it turned out to be true. Now, it may have been exceeded by what happened <laughs> with this latest McChrystal encounter. We don't know yet. Um, and he, he was described as being in a cold fury, and he said he wanted to know here and now that this conduct of boxing him in, trying to manipulate him, would end, uh, and that it was doing a disservice to our men and women in uniform and to the country. And the chairman of the Joint Chiefs left the meeting chagrined, and they vowed to change their behavior, and they did. So for quite a while, you didn't really hear the Pentagon talking out of school. Then there's this Rolling Stone interview. <laughs> uh, and so I think that it's, the reason I tell this story at a little bit of length is that it's a backstory, um, and it's, it's important to understand the context that these uh, rather dramatic events take place in. And backstory was what I was after in The Promise, to tell you what you didn't already know that hadn't been anywhere before. And I tried to do that also uh, on healthcare, the big story of the year. Um, and what I learned that was most interesting that nobody had really published before was that Barack Obama pursued healthcare over the objections of everybody around him. Vice President Joe Biden said, you know, the American people will give you a pass. You don't have to do this right away. You only promise to do it by the end of your first four years. Uh, we're trying to prevent a depression. This is during the transition early on. <clears throat> Rahm, Emanuel, <coughs> excuse me. Rahm Emanuel, the president's chief of staff, about whom I have a chapter called Rombo, uh, after the Sylvester Stallone character. The chapter's uh, rated NC-17 for language, so uh, I'm afraid in this venue I can't share all that much with you, but all I can say is, uh, well, there's one sort of church-related anecdote. I'll go on a small digression here because it, uh, before I get back to healthcare, um, uh, he sees uh, uh, Harry Reid's secretary, who's an older woman, uh, and she has a cussing jar on her uh, on her desk, uh, and. Um, 
She says, um, Congressman Emanuel, now that you're no longer in Congress, what should I call you? Should I call you Congressman? Should I call you Mr.? And he kind of brushes past her desk on the way into Harry Reid's office and says, call me S-head, my wife does. <laughs> anyway, usually the words start with an F, but uh, in that case, you got the slightly milder version. Uh, I'm going to kill that effing dog. He said of Bo the dog. He's off message. They told me that the president was going to have a uh, shelter dog, a mixed breed dog. They gave him a purebred Portuguese water dog. The president's spending all his time cleaning up after him. It's a waste of time. You know. Anyway, there's a lot of stories like that. He's very amusing. Uh, and he says, he says to the president, he says to me, I begged the president not to do this, health care, not to do this in year one. It was too heavy a lift politically. Um, later, when Obama decided to do it, uh, Rahm, as everybody calls him, the way they all call Hillary, Hillary, uh, did everything he could to make it happen, but not at first. Uh, at first, he tried to stop him. David Axelrod thought they should tackle energy first. Christina Romer the chairwoman of the Council of Economic Advisors, reminded him that Franklin Roosevelt waited two years before he introduced Social Security, after he came in in 1933, subject of my last book. And interestingly, uh, when Social Security passed in 1935, a lot of liberals were really upset about it, the way they were upset about the health care bill. They thought it didn't go far enough, and they were right. It insured fewer than 40% of senior citizens. It was a thoroughly racist Social Security bill. It excluded the Southern senators, made sure it excluded any occupations that African Americans held. But Roosevelt understood what Obama understood, which is you have to start somewhere, and then you can build on it and fix it. And Obama was determined to go ahead. I asked him, why? If this was going to hurt you so much politically, your people didn't want you to do it, why'd you do it? And he said, well, I told Nancy Pelosi I'd go down 10 to 15 points in the polls, and he did, and that I might not get reelected, and he might not. So I repeated the question, Mr. President, why'd you do it? And he said, uh, if we didn't do it now, it wouldn't have happened. It was now or never. And I think he was right about that. Presidents use their political capital or they lose it. He certainly wasn't going to have more Democrats in the Congress after the 2010 midterms. The party in control of the White House has only twice in 100 years gained seats in the first off-year election. Um, so uh, he moved forward, and uh, he made a number of tactical errors. Um, and the biggest setback for him was, of course, the Massachusetts election of Scott Brown uh, for Ted Kennedy's seat. Um, and at the time, uh, uh, a couple weeks before the election, Obama wanders into David Axelrod's office. Unlike previous presidents, he likes to manage by walking around. So he, you know, he's always on the move, sometimes throwing a football in the Oval Office. Uh, and he uh, does, always does his homework, usually late at night, and he's very much on task, but he's also kind of restless. And so he wanders into Axelrod's office, and Axelrod is reading the Boston Globe, online, and he says, I want to read you something. When asked why she wasn't campaigning more with 
regular voters, Coakley, Martha Coakley replied, what, shake hands outside Fenway Park in the cold? I don't think so. Now, as I think you know, like the house of worship that we're in now, Fenway Park is a shrine in Boston. <laughs> People go there to pray. And the president knew immediately that the, the uh, dreams of his first year had been dashed and that his 60 vote margin in the Senate was finished. And he grabs Axelrod by the shirt. He says, tell me she didn't say that. People say he never gets impassioned. This was about his passionate. Tell me that's not true. But it was true, and they lost that election. And then in a rather dramatic turnaround, uh, where my book ends, they managed to squeak out a victory. And it was the largest piece of social legislation in 45 years, and I think greatly underappreciated uh, by the public, uh, as was the stimulus bill. Now, it was with the stimulus at the very beginning of his presidency that it all kind of came apart politically. And Obama told me that the biggest surprise of his time in office was that the other side wasn't interested in governing. Remember, the Recovery Act had 300 billion in tax cuts, more than a third of it, which he put in playing poker rather badly, I should say. He put in at the front end of the process. Um, and uh, it was supported by Ronald Reagan's chief economic advisor, John McCain's chief economic advisor, the Republicans decided that they were not going to uh, take part. And when Obama broke precedent and went over and met just with Republicans on the House side early in his presidency, the House Minority Leader instructed all the members, none of us are voting for him. You know, there's nothing to talk about. And the president was wasting his time. And I think that kind of set the tone. He said that set the tone for the whole, uh, you know, Tea Party movement uh, and, and a lot of the reaction that came was from that original signal that they were going to pursue a policy of obstruction. Um, now, in addition to giving you this kind of backstory, uh, I also try in the promise to give people a sense of what's Barack Obama really like, um, both in meetings and in, uh, on the basketball court playing poker, off hours. Um, and I have a chapter called The Unbubba, where I, I compare his mind to Bill Clinton's. Um, I thought the comparison to George W. Bush was less interesting. Uh, um, and, so, um, and I concluded that Obama is a deductive vertical thinker who drills down very logically into an issue. And this rational, logical approach improves his batting average on decisions. It doesn't mean they're all right, but he has better odds of coming to the right result because of the disciplined, uh, unemotional process. It was described to me by somebody as the most, one of his aides, as one of the most unsentimental men he ever met. He didn't mean he didn't cry, you know, at family events. He was talking about when he was making decisions. Now, this works for Obama, but his problem is when he strips the emotion out of his private decisions, he neglects to put it back into the public part of the job. And that has really hurt him and hampered his ability to connect to the American middle class. 
So to me, the great surprise about Barack Obama is we expected him to ace communications, silver-tongued order, and struggle in executive leadership, and the reverse happened. He struggled in communications, partly because of his disdain for sound bites, and he did extremely well in executive uh, leadership. Um, and I, I think this disdain for sound bites is really a, a problem for him. Uh, he subscribes too much to Mario Cuomo's notion that you campaign in poetry and govern in prose. He's taken that a little too far. Uh, and uh, he forgets that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, Franklin Roosevelt, soundbite. A house divided against itself cannot stand, Abraham Lincoln, soundbite. Pretty much anything out of the mouth of Jesus Christ, soundbite, right? Something that you can remember that sticks with people. And, but if you look at the president's speech on, on the BP uh, oil spill the other week, what do we remember from it? So I think his speech writers and ultimately he are hurting themselves by uh, giving kind of elegant fast food uh, speeches where the effect wears off too quickly because it's not memorable. He's had trouble, as Valerie Jarrett put it, finding the right vocabulary not just on health care, but on, on other issues. But he's tremendously self-aware individual, and um, he's good at mid-course adjustments, and I think we're seeing some of that now. The contrast to Bill Clinton's very interesting. Um, Clinton is a inductive thinker and horizontal thinker who makes great connections between seemingly unrelated questions. That's the way his mind works, connective intelligence. The problem with it is, as some of his aides who now work for Obama say, they called him the second guesser in chief. He often had a very hard time making a decision, which particularly in a crisis atmosphere like we've had is really a problem. Um, but it can give him some advantages in coming up with creative policy solutions. Temperamentally, uh, Obama, it's a cool, steady 60 degrees the whole time. No highs, no lows. The problem is um, he doesn't always show enough gratitude to the people around him because he's not needy himself. Whereas Clinton, with his great neediness, which got him into all kinds of trouble, uh, <laughs> he understands the neediness of other people, whether on Capitol Hill or on his own staff. So most of the people who work for Clinton and now Obama prefer Obama because he doesn't rip their face off the way Bill Clinton often would with what they called his purple fits when he would really go off. He did it to me once when I asked him in uh, the presidential limo outside Hartford if he was going to seek uh, psychiatric counseling for his addiction. Sorry, you got, when you're in my business, you got to pull the trigger. You got to ask the question. And he said, John, I can't believe you asked me that, John. I can't believe it. And no, I really got to and then he leaves the limo without saying goodbye. I'm sitting there alone with the Secret Service. Where'd the president go? <laughs> but that happened to staff a lot. So the bad news for them was Clinton would, would rip, rip them, but then they also got that warm feeling when he forgave them, as he did me, actually, and gave them the, the hug. I love you, man. I really love you. So, you know, you get that with Clinton. You don't with Obama. Obama's mind works much more like Hillary's does, and I, I have a chapter called Picking Hillary that explains uh, how he decided to choose her. 
he finally, over the objections of his staff, they couldn't believe it. There was such hard feeling. He said, look, guys, that's what he likes to say, look, guys, she's the most qualified, okay? And that put an end to the conversation. And uh, at first, their relationship was described to me as like a couple of teenagers on a, on a first date, kind of awkward a little. But it, it got better with time, and uh, they now have a strong working relationship. It was a similar trajectory for Joe Biden. Uh, he had secretly, I learned, supported Hillary, even when he was ostensibly neutral in the primaries. And Obama found out and didn't care, chose him, but didn't trust him. And in the transition, when they were making key personnel decisions, Obama excluded Biden from those decisions. But then over time, he came to respect Biden's great knowledge, particularly on, on foreign policy, and great political uh, fingertips, even though he's gaff prone. Uh, and um, and eventually, he gave him the Iraq portfolio, and they made a great good cop, bad cop team with the Pentagon in these deliberations on Afghanistan that I mentioned. Uh, they don't have much of a personal relationship, and Biden doesn't care. He said, you know, the president only invited me to play golf once, and uh, I beat him with a 77, and he never invited me back. But. Uh, 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 just to give you one more example of the way Obama operates, makes decisions, this really fascinated me. Um, you remember the Copenhagen conference. He went back to Copenhagen for the climate change conference. He, the conference looked like it was going to fail. He didn't want to go back. Uh, and he was finally reminded, look, you went to Copenhagen to get the Olympics. The least you can do is go back to Cop Copenhagen to save the planet. You know, so he went. But it looked like it was going to fail. Hillary had been there for 11 days. It was disastrous for reasons we can talk about. And they decided, let's try to salvage something, at least the first transparency for the developing countries. And he just met with uh, uh, Premier Wen of China in Beijing. And when he got to Copenhagen, he was very determined to meet with Wen again. They couldn't get it scheduled. It looked like it wasn't going to happen. The Prime Minister of India had reportedly already gone to the airport. The thing was failing. So they finally get this room where the WEN meeting is supposed to take place. And when the advanced people go in there, they see that the Indian Prime Minister hasn't gone to the airport. He's meeting there secretly with Premier WEN of China and the President of South Africa and the leader of Brazil, Lula. Um, so Obama says, let's, let's crash that meeting. And they, he just walks in. And Premier Wen's environment and energy minister, Minister Xi, sees the President of the United States walking in and says, ow, ow, in some mixture of Chinese and, uh, and English. And Obama ignores him and walks up, hey, Lula, what's going on? <laughs> well, I guess there's no chair here. And uh, he pulls up a chair. Hillary pulls up a chair. They have two aides there. I don't think it's, I think it's pretty obvious that you know, at least one of them told me what happened because nobody else at the time found out what happened in the, in the key meeting. Uh, and um, they have 90-minute negotiation for this first transparency called the International Registry. So at least these countries would have to reveal internationally what their carbon emissions were, which is an important step forward, not as good as people hope for. Uh, and they're getting down to the short strokes, and suddenly, Minister Xi starts shrieking at Premier Wen in Chinese, shrieking at him. And all the heads of state look at the interpreter, 
And then Premier Wen says something in Chinese to the interpreter, and the interpreter says, for internal use only, internal discussion only. And at that point, at that point, President Obama slaps the table and says, I'll take that to mean we have an agreement, and he hikes out of the room. <laughs> and the Chinese had to live with what they had agreed to. Um, so that's what fascinated me, and I think, uh, you know, I would just uh, end by uh, quoting uh, Obama's favorite president, who was not Franklin Roosevelt. Obama and Roosevelt have a lot in common. The economy was the worst uh, since 1933 when he took over. Uh, I remember at one point the president said to me, uh, you know you've got a lot on your plate when an H1N1 pandemic is sixth or seventh on your, on your to-do list. Uh, we were losing 740,000 jobs a month when he became president. If we had stayed on that pace, we would have been in another Great Depression by the end of 2009. So this story of what happened was very, very dramatic, uh, of how we, uh, Roosevelt helped get us out of a depression, Obama, with some help, kept us from falling into a depression. Uh, and, and I think what we forget sometimes is that we are living history. You know, we have been cursed to live in interesting times, as the proverb has it. And uh, uh, my mind did turn to Lincoln, his favorite president, um, in pondering this. Um, the comparison is troublesome for Obama because it looks presumptuous. But I think what they really do have in common beyond uh, being tall and from Illinois, uh, is, is that Lincoln believed in what he called the better angels of our nature. And so does President Obama. And sometimes that can make him overconfident in the good judgment of the American people. Um, but I think it also, for all of his mistakes, and I haven't talked too much about them tonight, but we can in the Q&A, I think it does give him the capacity for growth and for change within himself. Uh, and he can fail in a hundred ways, but he continues to have at least the potential to be a great American president. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan Alter. Thank you, Jonathan Alter. You're listening to Forum Fest, the Westminster Town Hall Forum's new summer series, broadcast from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, senior minister at Westminster and moderator of Forum Fest. Our speaker tonight is author, columnist, and political commentator Jonathan Alter. While the ushers collect questions from our in-house audience, I invite you to join us for the remaining events at Forum Fest and for our fall town hall forums. Thursday evening, June 24th, Johan von Schrieb, founder of Sweden's chapter of Doctors Without Borders, straight from Haiti to Minneapolis, 
Friday night, Liz Winstead, co-creator of The Daily Show with John Stewart. Saturday morning, Contus Forum Fest invites you to be here. Information on upcoming programs can be found at westminsterforum.org. And now, Jonathan Alter, if you would return to the pulpit here at Westminster, I will present the questions from our audience. You alluded to mistakes that you hadn't described. Could you tell us what you think the biggest mistake President Obama made in his first year in office was? I think that he um, didn't tend uh, closely enough to being the uh, job placement officer of the United States, the first job placement officer. People's main priority is jobs. And he felt that the best way to create jobs was with the stimulus and indeed neutral nonpartisan estimates have shown that between 2.5 and 3.5 million jobs, most in the private sector, uh, have been created. And they've prevented hundreds of thousands of layoffs uh, with the $787 billion stimulus. It's very hard to get credit for that. For, Nobody says, oh, I love the president, I didn't get laid off. It's an abstraction that things, unemployment didn't go to 20%. And, and I, I think he should have had a, a little more FDR with maybe at least some uh, public works jobs program and that he needed to talk about it more to give people a sense that he was paying attention to their primary concern. Why has there been such a quick turnaround in the public's attitude toward the president from joy and hope to pessimism and hopelessness in only two years? Well, I, first of all, I, I'm not sure I agree with the premise of the question. Uh, it's true that you know he was uh, off the charts popular when he was sworn in. It was a historic day. Um, a lot happened on Inauguration Day, which I deal with in the promise, including a terrorist threat uh, that almost disrupted it. Uh, but he knew that the expectations were out of control, and that was one reason why in his inaugural address he tried to tamp them down. His popularity has remained extraordinarily high overseas in every country except Poland and Israel. Um, and at home, remember, he got 54% of the vote. And his numbers now are kind of in the high 40s, his, his approval rating. So they go up and down, and it dep depends whether you're, you're talking about personal approval rating, job approval rating. Uh, but I don't think that uh, there is despair um, generally. He's lost too many independents for his political health. And that's really where the problem is. Uh, and obviously he's lost some Democrats as well, and, and maybe we can talk about that uh, tonight. Uh, I think a lot of the Democrats he's lost, they had unrealistic expectations. They thought that he could come in and wave a magic wand, that their work was done having worked for him or voted for him, and that they were now on Miller time. And it was up to, up to Obama to fix everything. Well, that's just not the way politics works. It's never worked that way. When he said, we are the ones we've been waiting for during the campaign, a lot of the we didn't show up. So the town meetings were dominated last summer uh, by conservatives. And, and that was a failure of, of not just of Obama, but of, of the larger progressive movement. Follow-up question to that, what happened to that social movement that got Obama elected, the use of the internet, the youthful voters and the energy around that uh, election campaign, what happened with that? Could that be helping him now? It, it should be helping him more, and that's a very good question. Uh, what was called uh, Obama for America, their campaign organization, which had an unprecedented 13 million email addresses, 
OFA became organizing for America. And David Pluff, his campaign manager, has now been working out of the DNC. Um, they were not uh, as, they held thousands of meetings on health care, but they were not as big players as they should have been. The next big test is obviously uh, these midterm elections. I, I think the problem is in framing a message. I was talking about this a minute ago, communicating. You know, Al Franken had a great line. He said, uh, the Republican message on its bumper sticker is one word, no. The Democratic message on its bumper sticker is a whole lot of words followed by continued on the next bumper sticker. Uh, and so it's, it's very hard for uh, organizers, grassroots efforts, people who really uh, liked Obama, maybe now are a little disillusioned. It's hard for them to grab a hold of, of a coherent message, something that they really remember that lingers in the mind. Uh, but I do think they have to examine their own out-of-whack expectations and, 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 you know, as they're making this assessment. And they do have to ask themselves, this fall, you know, just, just this week, the Republican Party announced that Joe Barton, who offered an apology to BP, uh, he's the ranking member of the House Energy Committee, apologized to BP and said that trying to get more money for fishermen and other businessmen was a, quote, shakedown. And they decided that he will remain the ranking member, which means that if the Republicans take control, which they might if, if Democrats don't show up in independence, then Joe Barton will be chairman of that committee, and he will, somebody who is obviously in the pocket of the oil industry, will be determining our energy policy. So, you know, I think I've got a chapter called The Perfect and the Good, and the President makes this point all the time. You don't want to make the perfect the enemy of the good. And half a loaf is sometimes a hell of a lot better than nothing at all or moving backwards. This uh, latest crisis the President is facing happened after the publication of your book, but what impact do you think the spill in the Gulf the oil spill will have on the Obama presidency, short-term, long-term? Well, short-term, it's, it's horrendous uh, for him. His political reflexes were slow, um, and this is something that has been a problem for him when, I think, in the category of mistakes, uh, he's sometimes slow to respond. Uh, he was slow to respond to the Christmas Day underwear bomber. And his feeling is, I don't want to respond on the media's time. I'm not going to do what they want me to do on cable TV. I'm going to work on the substance, make the right choice, and let the results speak for themselves. But that's kind of unrealistic. You know, he said uh, the presidency isn't a theater when he was responding on BP. He said that on the Today Show. Wrong. He's just wrong about that. The president, presidency has always been a theater, always will be a theater, and the president has to perform in that theater. And so uh, he, he didn't in the early days of this crisis. He's never going to find his footing. He's not going to find his footing until the well is capped. Between now and then, he's going to continue to look kind of helpless. Um, but after that, I think the issue will recede. And uh, as long as he doesn't completely botch the cleanup, and they seem to be getting it together, together better in recent weeks, uh, it won't uh, destroy his presidency. Uh, what about Afghanistan? How will Obama uh, conclude the business in Afghanistan? Any comments on today's actions with McChrystal? Uh, that is uh, the firing of the general, the naming of a new general. 
What will success look like for this administration in Afghanistan? Well, um, this occupies a chunk of the book uh, I call Chaosistan. That's General McChrystal's word. Um, and the, uh, I do think that the fate of this administration is tied up with two issues, unemployment and Afghanistan. Were it to deteriorate a lot, it could be a real problem for Obama. He might be forced to stay. He doesn't want to stay. He wants a quick in, quick out strategy. And uh, the, uh, you know, among the most memorable interviews I did uh, was one with Joe Biden. And we were talking about this timetable for withdrawal, uh, which is supposed to begin, not a complete withdrawal, but to begin in July of 2011. And I said, well, you know, at the Pentagon, they're saying there's no way that you're going to meet that deadline. It's unrealistic. And he said, he, he walked me through a long story of how they got to that point. Um, and then uh, he said, we're, you're going to see a whole lot of people moving out of Afghanistan in 2011, bet on it. And then he said, I'm late for lunch with the president. He walked toward the door. He came back into the middle of his office where I was standing, and he put his finger in my chest, and he said, bet on it. And I think it would be a mistake to bet against uh, the vice president or the president who issued the timetable, which just this week, when uh, the White House press secretary was asked about my book and the account in my book, he reiterated that it was a firm timetable, as I reported in the promise. So they have this timetable. It's a presidential order. He has a loophole of conditions on the ground uh, require them to stay. But I tend to believe that they really will start getting out uh, in 2011. He's very focused on fighting al-Qaeda. That's the emphasis. He's killed many more what are called high-value targets uh, than George W. Bush did with these predator drones. And to, uh, to Biden and I think to Obama, that's the threat, something that threatens us, somebody who could plant a bomb in Minneapolis, not what's going on in nation building in Afghanistan. Uh, so it's, uh, the, the deliberations over that were fascinating as a, a window into you know, what's important in foreign policy and what our true national security objectives should be. How do you account for the ferocity of the reaction from his political opponents, the Tea Party and others on the, to the right of the president? What's the cause, what's the animus behind that? What motivates that reaction to him? Well, a lot of people think it's race. I'm sure there's some uh, element of that. Uh, the president himself doesn't think it's uh, mostly race. Um, I think there's a, a class dimension, too. Um, a, a group of people who feel like they're getting passed by by uh, highly educated uh, uh, Americans who um, are leaving them behind. It's very threatening. And But I wouldn't overestimate the Tea Party movement. In my own analysis, uh, of this is that there's always been, there are about 18 to 20 percent have some interest in Tea Party. There's always been uh, what I call the, the fearful fifth in American politics. I mean, it, politics has always been a contact sport in this country. You know, go back, look, remember what they said about Clinton? He's a drug dealer, He's dealing drugs out of the MENA airport in Arkansas. He killed people. A lot of people believe that the way they believe this birther nonsense. And, uh, 
Franklin Roosevelt, oh, he doesn't have polio, he's syphilis, and it went to the brain. Abraham Lincoln, he's only half man, he's half monkey, he's half baboon. You know, so this has been going on a long time. Is it worse now and more poisonous and more partisan? Yes. And where Obama clearly failed was this idea of, of moving beyond red and blue that he talked about in his famous 2004 convention speech and, and truly changing politics. It just hasn't happened. Now, can we blame him? Partly, but I think we also have to blame Amer the American political culture. But that's just something that he wasn't able to make good on. There were about 500 campaign promises that he made. PolitiFact, a nonpartisan news organization that won a Pulitzer Prize a couple of years ago, they said that he made progress or fulfilled 385 of those 500 just in his first year. So on a lot of specifics, he was making a lot of headway. But on some of the big ones, like uh, really doing something about partisanship, he tried and he failed. What would you advise the president to do with his party to uh, not fail so miserably as people expect them to in the midterm elections? Um, well, first of all, uh, it's very unlikely that they'll lose the U.S. Senate, which is, is uh, certainly good news for Klobuchar and Franken. Um, better for people to pound the gavel than be in the minority. Um, the House is a much iffier question, and nobody really knows yet whether they'll lose it. Um, I think they need to localize the campaign. The Republicans want to nationalize it and turn it into a, a referendum on, uh, on the deficit and Obama and the rest. Uh, Democrats want to localize it, and I think that's probably the right strategy, so go kind of race by race. Uh, and I, I think, uh, you know, the historical tide is moving against them. There are a lot of Democrats that hold seats in, in districts McCain won. It will be hard for them to get reelected, but not impossible. And I do think as the election gets closer um, that uh, some Democrats who are kind of disillusioned will go, you know, do we want to go back? And that it basically a don't go back message might work pretty well. We have Liz Winstead speaking here on Friday on the media. A question about the media for you. Is the media failing to do their job in, in correcting errors of fact or providing critical analysis of the events that unfold around us? Now, what would give you that idea? <laughs> I thought you'd say that. Uh, uh, Liz uh, worked in fake news uh, for the Daily Show, as does my wife, who works for the Colbert Report. Uh, and they're... Um, <laughs> I, was, I was on a show a couple of, uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, for the, I guess, the fourth time. It's, it's daunting, as you might imagine, but more so for me because my wife, working on the program, kind of puts a, a finger like a loaded gun to my head and says, you blow it out there, I'll blow your brains out. Uh, uh, <laughs> but, um, Unfortunately, Colbert and Stewart and others are doing some of the best work holding government and politicians accountable. I think we do tremendously good work at Newsweek, too, and I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that we're going to continue to do so. Um, and so it's, it's really hard to look at the press as a monolith, because there are these wonderful examples of terrific reporting that you can find uh, 
at different news organizations. The basic problem with the media right now is that talk is cheap and reporting is expensive. And the question is who's going to subsidize news gathering rather than news chewing, like what happens a lot online, just re-chewing stuff that's already been out, even if it's clearly untrue, which happens a lot of the time. Um, and there's a fundamental unseriousness about, uh, within the media that Obama is really troubled by, um, and there's a story that he told me that I think captures his, his attitude toward it. Um, he said that he was meeting with the president of South Korea and that he, the president of South Korea's biggest domestic problem was that the parents were very upset because their kids were only learning English in second grade, not first grade, and they were demanding the importation of thousands of English teachers. And so he says, this is what we're up against in the global competition. This is what we're dealing with, is nations that are doing a better job of educating their kids and moving, they're moving ahead. And we're behind South Korea in, in math and science and certain other areas and a lot of other countries. He said, uh, I left that meeting with the president of South Korea and I went out to meet with the American media and all they wanted to know from me was, have you read Sarah Palin's book yet? And the president just shakes his head. I'll never forget this. He just shakes his head in disgust and says, true story, true story. Um, and it's a problem. The, but his problem is, in the same way that he said to liberals during the healthcare debate, you've got to deal with the world as it is, not as you want it to be. Don't make the perfect the enemy of the good. You know, deal with the world as it is. Politics is the art of the possible. When it comes to the media, he wants to deal with the world as he wants it to be, not as the media world actually is. And he does have to make more concessions to the silly conventions of my business, but they can help him succeed as president. And if he continues to be too stiff-necked about the media, he's going to have problems going forward. It was a big mistake for him to go a full 10 months without holding a press conference. Uh, he did uh, have a lot of way more, three times as many one-on-one -on -one interviews as President Bush, but he needs to realize that uh, it doesn't make any sense uh, to antagonize uh, the media unnecessarily. For a final question, I assume that you feel like the president's going to be uh, running for re-election, and on that assumption, does your son Tommy think he's going to be re-elected? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. Um, I asked the president if he thought he would be re-elected. He said, I think rightly, it's too soon to know. Uh, my son, perhaps reflecting his generation, believes that he will be easily re-elected. I'm not so sure about easily. Um, I have a, a quote in the book from an old friend of Obama's uh, from Harvard Law School. I, I try to talk to as many of his friends about what he's like as I could. Uh, and uh, she said uh, that Obama had told her last year, you know, I don't, I don't know why anybody would want this job for more than one term, but I'm guess I'm going to have to run again. Otherwise, Mitt Romney will get credit for all the good things we've done after we've, <laughs> you know, they said all the good things we've done after we've been through all this crap. And I think that kind of summarizes his his attitude. You know, he is part of what I call. 
Don Regan, Ronald Reagan's chief of staff, called the Shovel Brigade. His job is to clean up after the elephants. Uh, and, and uh, you know, You know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about, about uh, the bank bailouts, the auto bailouts, Afghanistan, which was much worse than uh, he expected, even though he had promised to move troops into Afghanistan, or BP, which is an indirect, at least, result of the horribly lax regulation uh, of the last eight years, where they didn't do proper inspections or licensing or all the rest. Um, and this is one of the reasons why you know, he is determined to keep his foot on the gas. Uh, one senator told me every time I think he's going to put his foot on the brake, he puts it on the gas again. Whether it's health care, he's now pushing forward on energy. They're about to sign a big financial re-regulation bill, which isn't nearly as strong as I would like. And one of my big criticisms of him is I don't think he used his leverage over the banks as he needed to uh, in early 2009. But having said that, He's moving forward to, as he puts it, put more points on the board. Um, and I think that uh, you know, ultimately he feels he'll be judged by results. He believes, as the late Mayor Daley of Chicago said, that good uh, government is good politics. That if you do deliver for people, eventually they'll, uh, they'll catch up. And I just want to end uh, with a, a Bill Clinton story from 1998. I saw him on the the single most embarrassing day of the American presidency when the Paula Jones lawsuit was all over television all day and he, the President of the United States was having to talk about the most in, intimate details of his sex life. And um, I saw him uh, at a reception near the United Nations afterward and he says, um, he's in a very upbeat mood. And he said, you know, uh, some South American leaders came up to me and I said, you're lucky, Mr. President. In our country, when they stage a coup d'etat, they use real bullets, you know? <laughs> and then he said, then he said, I said, Mr. President, are you, you know, are you going to survive this thing? He goes, I'm going to be just fine because the American people, if you give them enough information and enough time, they always get it right. They've got common sense and they always get it right. Now, I don't know about the always. <laughs> But I think uh, I also have faith in the American people, and I think that they eventually, uh, you know, will sort out um, over time what's, what's in their interest, despite all of the impediments and all the messed up things about our politics. Um, and, uh, you know, we did manage to elect a, a thoughtful, clear-eyed, bright, and at least intermittently gifted man as President of the United States, and that speaks pretty well for the, for the American people. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jonathan Alter. Yeah.